Well, good morning, Providence. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Ryan, and I uh, get the privilege, a uh, genuine privilege, just to serve as one of your pastors here at the church. And so um, excited to open up God's Word with you today. We've been marching through the Gospel of John, so we're going to continue in the Gospel of John. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in one of the chairs um, in front of you, and there's a rack underneath that chair. And we'll be on page 895. So uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 48. And uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, you kind of know the context of what's going on, but we're about to hop into a middle of a conversation. So let me just um, set you up for kind of what this conversation looks like. And um, during college, working through college, I worked as a, a server at Chili's. And there's fun stories, a ton of fun stories that you could share just about waiting on people for years and just seeing what that looks like. And actually the president at uh, uh, the seminary down the road here, Dr. Aiken said that he thinks that everybody that goes into ministry should be a server at some point in their life so they can know what it means to wait on people who really don't care about them. Um, so what he said, I was like, okay, wow, that's a little, a little challenging. But there was one story I'll never forget because it's, like I said, it sets the context of what we're gonna be in, uh, in John today. And I, went, I walked up to this one table and I'm about to take their, um, their order, get their drinks and everything. And it's a, it's a booth and on one side there's a, uh, mom and a dad, and on the other side, there's a son. And as soon as I walk up to this table, you could just feel the weight at this table, like just the tension there. And nobody's saying anything. You, I just can walk up and I'm like, hey, can I get you guys, uh, you know, a Coke or a water or a sweet tea? And you can tell nobody's talking and they just kind of give their orders. And I'm like, I don't know what that's all about. So I kind of walk away and come back and um, still not talking to each other, just looking at each other, not saying anything. I'm like, this is just weird, right? This is like, what's going on at this table? You're having a meal, but you're not talking to each other. And so I get their, their food order and I go back to the kitchen. And before I can make it back out, I hear them. And they are arguing with one another. I mean, there's no, there's no more silence. It's just like no holds bar. Let's just yell at each other in front of everybody in this whole place. And I'm like, what are they arguing about? Like, I don't know exactly what they're arguing about, but part of me as I'm serving other tables wants to walk by and just kind of lean in for a second to kind of figure out what the, the confusion and the argument is all about. Like, what is this, what's going on with this? I'm like, really, is this, is this the right time? Is this the right place to have an argument and a conversation like this? Because the tension is now like it's spreading. Like not only is it at that table, but it's spreading to the tables around it. And then the whole, whole place is like looking in at these people screaming and arguing with each other. Now, why I say that is because in this context, we're hopping into the middle of a conversation. Um, uh, Last week, Brian looked at the first part of this where they're standing in the temple and the religious people are talking to Jesus and they're arguing. And I just imagine people are walking by. They don't even know what's going on, but they're walking out. They're probably wanting to lean in to say, what are these people arguing about? Like, this is the temple. So why are so many people arguing in this moment? What, What are they arguing about? And so I'm sure some people are stopping. Some people are leaning in to see what this this conversation, this debate is all about. And that's exactly what we're gonna do. We're gonna hop into the middle of this conversation. And the first verse we read, we're gonna see the tension. So John chapter eight, starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Take a moment now just to silently pray that God would speak to you this morning through his word. And take a moment to pray for me that I would just speak God's beautiful word and communicate it clearly this morning. Father, we thank you that no matter where we are in our walk um, with you, Lord, you hear us when we pray. Whether we sit in this room with heaviness and sorrow, Lord, you're there with us and you hear our prayers. Whether we're in times of joy and laughter, God, you are there because you are the great I am. You are the beginning and the end. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to hear from you this morning, hear from your word. And in turn, that you would change our hearts to live an abundant life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in this context, what we're going to see is there's three main themes that Jesus brings up in this debate and in this argument. And these are three things that we think about uh, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, but they come to our mind over and over again. And honestly, they're three heavy things, but they're three really important things. And three things are this, judgment, death, and the eternal God. Judgment, death, and the eternal God. That's what Jesus keeps bringing up in this section, in this debate, and in this argument. And so the first one I want us to talk about is judgment. And I phrase a statement like this, that God is the true judge of our lives. God is the true judge of our lives. And these first four verses in the section we read, what you see is a mini court case. I mean, there's not really like a court session going on, but what you see is there's accusations and there's defense that's happening. And then there's a judge that's there. All this happens in these four verses. And so it starts with the accusations flying. The people there are looking at Jesus and they're like, hey, you know what, Jesus? What you are is a Samaritan. And what you are is you're demon possessed, which... There is literal, literal demon possession, but what they're talking about there is you're crazy. And these aren't just 
um, a little little punch to the to the stomach kind of insults. Like these are cut to the heart, stabbing deep into who Jesus is. Because when they say that you're a Samaritan, they're claiming that first of all they're making a racial racial slur to Jesus. They're making a racial slur to him because Samaritans at that time were considered half-breeds. They, they weren't pure Jewish lineage. And so they had gone out and uh, in, in the past, they had, Jews had left the Jewish faith and they had joined with other nations and they had started to worship other idols. So they started to intermarry with other nations. And some wanted to still keep the faith of Judaism. And so they just kind of created their own and made their own temple and they made their own worship system. And they kind of marred what God's word had said. And so they look at Jesus and they're like, hey, you're a Samaritan because we don't even know who your dad is. You know, we know who your mom is, that's Mary, but we don't know who your dad is. So your dad is probably a Samaritan, which makes you a Samaritan. So they're just casting these racial slurs on Jesus. And why that would cut so deep is because God is Jesus' heavenly father. And they're looking at him and they're like, you don't even have a father. And if you do have a father, he's just, he's a half breed. He's less than what he should be. And so they, they throw these racial slurs at him and then they follow that up. If it wasn't enough, they, they look at him and they call him crazy. They say, you're demon possessed. You're, you're crazy, man. You don't even know what you're saying. Now, what's so interesting about this is how Jesus responds to this. Because think about it, what if you were in that moment and people are yelling these things at you, these racial slurs, and they're calling you insane and they're calling you crazy. Jesus seems to have in this, this text, a sense of peace, a sense of security and sense of calmness. And it's because as these accusations fly, Jesus puts forth his defense. And it's the same defense that we should have, the same defense that should give us peace in the midst of moments like this. And so you see Jesus' defense in verse 49. And what he's laying out here is he says, hey, I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm not healing people. I'm not preaching. I'm not doing all these things for my sake. I'm actually doing it for the Father's sake, for his glory. But you dishonor me, which ultimately means you dishonor God the Father. Now, one of Jesus' defense that he's laying out here, because he lays out two, but the first one is this, that when you slander another human being, when you slander that person, you're ultimately slandering God. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, in the book of James, it says that we praise God with our lips and we turn around and slander man who's created in the image of God. It says these two things are not to be so. When we slander and we gossip and we put down others who are created in the image of God, what we're doing is we're marring who God is. We're slandering who God is. And Jesus says, hey, what you speak about me is ultimately about God. And here's something we've got to know. It's ultimately that when we are sinned against, ultimately it's not about us. It's about God being offended. We so often just rest on us like we've been offended. These things have been said about us when it's much, much greater than that. It is an offense against God. And that works both ways. When people say things to us like that, it's ultimately offense against God. But also when we speak ill ill of others, what we're doing is we're sinning against God. He's the one that's ultimately offended by this. So Jesus says this to your response, to, to the way that you're accusing me, I'm gonna say, I'm here to glorify God. So as you slander me, you're ultimately slandering the father. 
So there should be a sense of peace we gain by realizing that God is there. And we follow that up by realizing that he is a just judge, a just judge. In verse 50, it says, I do not seek my own glory, but there's one who seeks it. And he is the judge. And Jesus is saying, I'm not living for myself. All these acts that I'm doing are ultimately not about me. It's about pointing to God, the father. And he, said, he looks to them and says, one day you will stand before God, the father. And he's going to judge. And we're gonna see who's right and who's wrong. We're gonna stand before this just judge and he's gonna make all things right. He's going to do that. And so Jesus, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this tension, he can look at it and have peace because he knows those two things, that sin is ultimately an offense against the father and that he is a just judge who will make all things right. So you see the the accusations, you see the defense, and then you see the judge. And in this text, what is Jesus saying that the father is going to judge? He doesn't come out specifically say it in this text, but you can kind of read into it and see. He's ultimately saying that God is going to judge our lives. God is going to judge our lives. He says, I'm not seeking my own glory in verse 50. I'm not living for myself, but there's one who's going to judge to tell me what I'm living for. And there's a God that's going to judge to say, what are you living for? So he's asking that question, what are we living for? What are we glorying in? What are we placing our weight and our hope in? And that is a great question. That's one that we have to consider. We have to know that there's judgment coming for what we live for. But oftentimes as we think of this judgment, as we think of this courtroom that we'll one day experience, we often view our own courtroom um, and there's some misunderstandings that come as we have viewed our courtrooms in the light of God's courtrooms. So uh, it's a few weeks ago now, just the beginning of, of September, that I was called in for jury duty, right? The, the fun aspect of jury duty. And everybody's telling me before I go in, you're gonna come in, you're gonna sit in a room for eight hours and then they're gonna send you home. So I'm like already preparing for that. I've got a book, I've got some things I'm gonna study, some stuff I'm gonna do. And I come in and I sit down in this room of 250 other people in downtown Raleigh. And the first guy I sit, sit beside and start talking to, he says, I've been called in for jury duty six times and I've never left this room. I just come in here and I sit here all day. And so like, I've already got in my mind, this is what I'm gonna do the rest of my day. I'm kind of kicking back and relax a little bit, read and just try to enjoy this time. Well, about an hour into it, they start calling for jurors and they call my name. I'm like, great. Like I had this plan in place and it's just gone now. So they call me and, and several other people to come in and we, we go to this courtroom and there's the judge and all of it was just interesting to see. Um, and then, you know, with the jury, we're trying to get a jury that's an unbiased jury, right? Um, a jury of our peers that can weigh out the facts and evidences and say this person's innocent or this person's guilty. And so the lawyers are bringing up each one of us and they're asking us questions about the case and uh, the judges kind of set the case as a whole, what it looks like. And I realize as I'm watching this happen that this is really how we view what will ultimately be the courtroom before God the Father one day, where hopefully we'll, we'll stand before a jury of our peers 
who are gonna vote and say, well, this person was pretty good or they were bad or they were really good. So like, they're gonna vote on our behalf. And the judge who really, in our court system is really kind of like the, uh, the referee, making sure people stay in bounds. Like he's calling out the lawyers, hey, can you guys come up here? You can't say that, you can't ask that question. And so we have this picture. And, and even what we see on the courthouse buildings, what we see in pictures is this picture of the lady justice, the blonde lady justice, right? Where we look at this picture and the reason why she's blindfolded is rightfully so that, uh, that justice doesn't weigh out your social class or your race or anything like that and make judgment. Rather, it's blinded and it weighs the scales. And based upon the evidence, it's either way to guilty or it's way to innocent, but it's like, how is it gonna balance out? Now, this is kind of how we view the courtroom and how we view judgment, but that's not God's courtroom. Like we need to realize this is not the picture of God. Like the judge that sits in our courtroom is not blindfolded and he's not weighing out evidences that are given from our friends and our peers upon whether we're innocent or guilty. Like think about this. The God that we will sit before knows all things. He knows every motive and every thought. He knows what we live for. He knows every hair that is on our head. And so he's not weighing out facts. He already knows it. He already knows what the the ruling is going to be. So God, the father stands there and he says, guilty, guilty because of the sin that we've committed that has ultimately offended him. Now, I'm very thankful for pictures like this in the Gospel of John that talk about judgment and paint this picture of a courtroom because we need to understand it. But what's so amazing about this is this is not the point. This is not the main purpose, the main idea of the book of John. The main idea of the book of John is that we would know and we would believe. And in knowing and in believing, we would have eternal life. I'm thankful for moments of judgment, but I'm also thankful that Jesus came. The gospel of John chapter three says, not to condemn the world, but that through him, the world would have everlasting life. And that's what Jesus does. In the courtroom, when Jesus hung on the cross, what he was ultimately doing is stepping into the courtroom as our defense saying, I know he's guilty, but I will take his place. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we sing because we are guilty. We're not standing beside Jesus saying, no, 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 we're not guilty. We're not guilty. No, we stand in the courtroom and we say, we're guilty. We did these things wrong. We did an offense to God Almighty. We did an offense to other people, but he has died on our behalf. He is the one that steps in our place. And Jesus does that so well in this text. He lays down this picture of, judgment, and then right beside it, he lays down the picture of salvation. It's something we choose, judgment or salvation. They're both laid down there. And as I read this text, it's, it's shocking to me because if there's ever a time where I would wanna bring down condemnation on somebody, it would be in this moment. <laughs> like if there's ever a time that Jesus should bring down condemnation, it's now, Right? <laughs> Like these people have just yelled racial slurs at him and said he was insane. Like if I were Jesus in that moment, I'd be like, let's just dust off my hands and be done with these people because this is ridiculous. Like they're insulting me and they're insulting God the Father. So let's, like, let's just push them to the side and move on. 
But that's not who Christ is. That's not who Christ is. It's amazing. He follows up all of these mean, hateful statements with the gospel. With the gospel. In verse 51, he says, after this is right after the judge statement, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is a beautiful picture. And what Jesus is saying here, what he's unfolding here is that ultimately God is the great absolute in life, not death. God is the great absolute in life. It's not death. Everything around us says that death is the ultimate. But in this text, Jesus says, we won't even see death. And then later on, they accuse him. They're like, you say that we won't even taste death in verse 52? And notice Jesus doesn't even correct him for that statement. Jesus said, see, they say taste. He's like, both are right. You won't see nor taste death. That explodes the gospel all over this conversation, all over it. There's hope that is given even in the midst of this chaos. And this is the mission of Christ. Mission of Christ is this, that we would have life and have it to the full. He wants to give us abundant life. But we read this statement and it's confusing to us, right? We read the statement, we'll never taste death I mean, what is Jesus saying there? It was confusing for the people at that time, right? And I think the reason why is because when we think of death and we see this word as death, what we do is we define it as the flat line of vitals. Our vital signs have flatlined, and so now death has taken place. And I think if we could stand before God and ask him to define death, and I think as we read his word and as he defines death, it looks completely different than that. Death is, and by definition, a biblical definition, is the separation from God. That's what death is, a separation from God. And why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? Because everything that we experience, everything good, all things that are good come from God. From the sunrise that we saw this morning, which was beautiful, and you guys are the 8 a.m. crowd, so I know you saw it. It's, it was gorgeous and we enjoy that as well as friends and family, all of those good things come from God. Everything that we experience, the the air we breathe, all of that comes from God. And so literally when we're separated from God, all we experience is bad. All we experience is negative. And right now in this moment, God has shown us all what they call common grace. That God's goodness pours over the just and the unjust. For there will come a day when Christ will come again, this, not, this time not to offer salvation, but to bring judgment. And we choose which one we're gonna experience. Are we gonna bow our knee to Christ as our loving king or will we come and see him as the just judge? And death, no doubt, is terrible. And this picture that God paints in his word of a separation between us and him. Think about it. Think about death again for a second in in the sense of when death came on the scene. Like it wasn't God's original plan, right? It came in the garden. Adam and Eve sin, 
death comes on the scene, he says, this is one of the curses for your sin. And so did Adam and Eve die in that moment? I mean, did their, their vitals flatline in that moment? No, what happens? They're, they're separated from God. They used to walk in the garden with God and now they're, they're sent out from the garden and they're having to toil the ground and they're having to deal with death and sin, even the death of their son. Like they're struggling with all of that because now death has entered into the world, both physical and spiritual. And what's glorious about this is Throughout the whole Bible, God's trying to fill in that chasm. God is filling in that chasm so that we can experience a relationship with him again, that we would dwell with him again. Like, this is amazing. This traces through the whole Bible. Back in Genesis, there's a separation. They, God dwells in the garden. They sin. They're separated. And God's like, well, I still want to dwell with my people. My people still need me. So he creates the tabernacle, which literally means to dwell. God comes and he dwells in the Holy of Holies in the midst of his people. We go, we mess that up. We bring sin into that. We start worshiping idols in that temple. So God's like, I've got to go to the next stage. I've got to go to the next extreme. And at the beginning of the gospel of John, it says that Christ came from heaven to earth to dwell among men. The God of life came down in the midst of our death to dwell with us that we would experience abundant life. And it doesn't stop with Christ. You go to Revelation and one day in the new heavens and the new earth, God comes down again and uses the same word to dwell with man. And all this dwelling and all this interaction with God, this is eternal life. This is what eternal life is. The gospel of John will say later in chapter 17 that this is eternal life. This is the definition that they would know me, the only true God. So So eternal life doesn't start once we die. It's not like, well, once we die, then we're gonna enter eternal life. No, Jesus came and he came to bring us eternal life in this moment. But when we read this statement and we see this, our response, honestly, in our hearts or in our minds or even with our mouths are almost the same as these people where we're like, you have a demon, you're crazy, Jesus. What are you talking about? Death is everywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter what age you are, like you see death around you. Even this weekend, a four-year-old little girl lost her betta fish. Like little Raph died and we're trying to explain death even to a four-year-old. Like as well as when you're older, seeing people pass away, like physical death is everywhere. And we're always looking for the cure. And so we look at Jesus in this moment, we're like, wait a second, Jesus, this seems crazy. You're saying that you'll never die. All we're doing is looking at death through the physical lens and not the spiritual lens. And we hate death. Rightfully so, we hate death. God hates death. But just think about our culture, how much money and time and effort that we invest into trying to ward off bodily death as long as we can, right? I mean, the other day I was going through the drive-thru at a fast food restaurant and I'm looking at the, the menu and I'm literally counting calories on the menu. I'm like, okay, that one will give me this many calories and that one will give me this many calories. It's because I want to stay healthy, right? You know, I want, I want to take care of my body. But as I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, I'm in a fast food restaurant line. Like if I'm going for healthy, fast food's not the way to go, right? Like, but, but we count our calories. We make sure we're good on that side of things. I mean, we invest money in healthcare. I mean, think about just our cars, just, just our cars alone. We're investing our monies in, in, in 
airbags and seat belts. I mean, we've got an airbag for everything. You got a window airbag, you got a um, airbag in front of you, you got an airbag on your side. You, there's airbags everywhere. I'm just imagining if you get in a car accident, like you're just going to be in this big ball of fun jumping around because there's so many airbags. And we take money and we, we put it in locks on our doors because we want to be kept safe at night. I mean, everywhere around us, we're investing money to fend off physical death. And what we're ultimately doing is we're trying to fix an interior problem with something on the exterior. We're ultimately trying to, to fix something on the outside when there's really a spiritual problem with it. And we'll go so far as even to deny death. To deny death. But all these exterior things are not gonna call, are not gonna fix the problem. They're not. Like imagine if you came to, uh, or let's just imagine you're my neighbor, okay? And you come out one day and you see me, I go to get my car and I go to turn over my car. And as I turn it, it's just clicking. And I get out of the car and I'm like, hmm, okay. I know what I'm gonna do. And I go into my garage and I pull out my shop back and then I vacuum out the seats and I vacuum out the carpets and it looks really clean and nice in there. I'm like, well, let me get some armor all real quick. And I get some armor all and I armor all the dash and I armor all the, uh, the seatbelt buckle. Like I'm even going that far because I used to detail cars. Like I'm going to the extremes to make it perfect. And then put all that stuff away. I get back in my car and I go to start it up again. And it's just, nothing's happening. So you're watching all this happen. You see me get out of the car again. I go inside and I get some wax and I go out and I wax the car and then I wipe it off. And so like, it's really smooth. So now I got like a really smooth outside and a really clean inside. I've got to be good now, right? I go and I jump back in the car and I go to start it back up. And it's just like at some point you would come up to me and you'd be like, hey, Ryan, I like how your car looks and everything, but there's bigger issue. There's something wrong with your battery, probably. There's something wrong with your starter, your engine. And you're not going to fix it by doing all these things on the outside. But that's what we try to do. We try to find all of these external cures when Christ stands here with the ultimate cure. And he says that we don't have to die. One of man's greatest fears, he looks at it and he says, you don't have to die. I was talking to a, a guy at our church that his wife is a nurse and he, he says she's been in the room where I, people have died, those that know the Lord and follow him and those that haven't. She said, you can clear, tell a clear difference between the two. One room, there seems to be a sense of peace and in the other room, there's almost a sense of cold darkness. It's like, you can see the two. It's because eternal life is given now that extends forever. I mean, think about it. By definition, eternal life cannot stop, right? Or it wouldn't be eternal life. Eternal life is not gonna stop for five minutes on a hospital bed. It's not. It's gonna continue for all eternity. And one thing that we know for sure, one thing that we can know with no shadow of the doubt as we read the Bible is that everybody in this room will be here consciously, in a physical body, two million years from now. Everybody will be. We'll have a personality. We'll be able to talk to one another. But we're gonna spend, we're gonna spend the rest of eternity in one of two places, in eternal life, in the presence of God, or in eternal death separated from God and all that is good. That's what lays before us. And Christ and his great beauty 
says that if you will listen to my words and obey, believe that you will have everlasting life. And when we read a claim like that, we have to understand who's saying it because you read it and that sounds extremely bold to make a statement like that. Even the Jews said that. They're like, wait, all these other people died. Abraham died, the prophets died, they spoke the word of God. Now you're coming in and you're saying that you have something better? And they ask this question in verse 53. It's the question that you and I have to ask as we read this text. And he says at the end of verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be? And at that time, they start raising up the heroes of faith. They're like, who do, you, who do you make yourself out to be? Are you better than Abraham? Like he was one of the founders of our faith. There's no way you're better than him. And then you read earlier in the gospel of John, this lady looks at him, lady at the well and says, are you better than our father, Jacob? Like you can't be better than him. Like he was a, a, a spiritual monster. Like he had this great faith. You can't be better than him, right? And the other gospels talk about that there's somebody coming that's better than Moses, who's considered the most humble man on the face of the earth. There's somebody better than Jonah. There's somebody better than King Solomon, who's considered the wisest and the richest man in his time. And all of this is leading to the question, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus is like, yes, I'm better than all of them. And that's why I can make this statement that you will never taste or see death if you listen to my words and you believe. Because the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus is the eternal God. Verse 58, Jesus says to them, again, this is a huge statement for the whole gospel of John, but extremely impactful for even us today. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if Jesus just wanted to say that he was here, he was born before Abraham was, he just would have said, before Abraham was, I was. And I don't think he would have got the same reaction. I don't think they would have picked up stones to try to stone him because they probably would have said, well, he's just claiming to be an angel or you know, some kind of being that was here at the very beginning of creation. Like that's a little weird, but like, he, at least he's not claiming to be God. But that's not what Jesus says, right? He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. And this should weigh heavy on us, just like it weighed heavy on these people. Because this statement is pointing back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter three, God is speaking to Moses and he says, I want you to go into Egypt. And what I want you to do is I want you to redeem our people. I want you to free them and bring them out of Egypt. That's what I want you to do. And Moses is like making these arguments back to God. And he's like, okay, if I go and I tell them that, I say, hey, God said, I'm supposed to like bring these people out, his people. They're gonna say, which God is that? Because Egypt had a lot of gods, right? I mean, like, is it the sun God, Ra? Are we like, is that the one that you're talking about? Or is it our fertility God? Or is it our rain God? Like, which God are you talking about? Because we need to know, Moses. And so God speaks back to Moses and he gives him his personal intimate name. And he says, tell them I am sent you. What does that mean? <laughs> what, what is it? I am? What are, you, what are you saying there? What does that mean? 
comes from the, the root word and verb. The, it means to be. What God is claiming in the book of Exodus and what Jesus is claiming here in the gospel of John is that God is not contingent on anything. God was here before the beginning and he will be here at the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He's here in the times of perfection. He's here in the times of sorrow. He says, I am God. I I don't, I'm not hanging on anything else. Rather, all of creation hangs on me. All of creation exists and breathes and thrives in me. Even the breath that we get in this moment is because God has given it to us. And what's beautiful about this statement is what he's saying is that God never gets better and he never gets worse. He just is. And all of his perfection and all of his beauty, God is. So we look at this moment where Jesus makes the statement and they knew what he was saying because they pick up stones to stone him because like you're claiming to be God right now. You're using the name of God for yourself. And this wasn't the first time and it won't be the last time in the gospel of John where Jesus will make this connection. We've seen this as we've been walking through it, but Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Same word, ego me in Greek. Ego me. I am the light of the world. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. But this statement, this one in John 8, verse 58, is the most blunt of all of Jesus' statements, claiming to be God. Because he makes the I am statement. He doesn't attach an illustration to show what kind of God this I am is. He just says it and lays it out there. He says, I am. Now, what's so sad about this is that the people in the story can't get past Abraham to see the great I am. They're they're hung up, they're caught on Abraham and they can't get past it. So what Jesus does is he uses Abraham to point to himself. He shows that Abraham didn't live for, for all these works that would bring salvation, but rather Abraham lived for Christ, for the Messiah. Verse 46, it says this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see, uh, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Now Abraham lived thousands of years earlier. And they're like, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. How in the world did Abraham see you? And commentators bounce back and forth about what exactly this means, whether it was when Abraham was sacrificing Isaac, if that's when he saw the picture of the Messiah that would come and take away sins, or whether it's a picture of just God spoke to him and he heard it and he saw it, he he saw a picture of the future. We we don't know, but the truth is, is set that that Abraham was looking forward to the day the Messiah would come to take away sin. He understood that in some form or fashion. So Jesus says, you wanna, you wanna see something great? Look back to Abraham and look to what he pointed to. And when you look to what he pointed to, what you'll see is me. C.S. Lewis said it like this, that we're oftentimes like a child playing in the mud when a vacation at the beach is waiting for us. 
Abraham is good, but compared to Christ, he's nothing. So we should model Abraham. Model Abraham. Look at Abraham's life. There's two things I want us to pull out as we start to close here. Let's first look at how Abraham rejoiced in verse 56. He rejoiced that he would see his day. And it says that he would see it. Abraham rejoiced and he believed. Now, when we think about the Old Testament, how are those people at that time saved? We think oftentimes of all the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. We're like, well, cool. It's all these sacrifices that they put up. That's what made them good before God as they went into heaven. And Jesus, even in this section, is saying that that's not true. It's Abraham's faith. It was Abraham's faith. He believed he, he, believed he would see Christ one day. He would see the Messiah one day. So the people in the Old Testament, Hebrews even talks about it. The blood of all these bo- uh, goats and bulls would not be enough to forgive them of sins. It wouldn't be. And our works are not gonna be enough to forgive us of our sins. All that stuff is, is, is just rubbish before God unless, unless we know Jesus Christ as the great I am, as the one that saves and redeems us. Abraham sees this and he believes, but he also rejoices. He rejoices. And we too are called to rejoice in the day of Christ. That's why we meet every Sunday because Sunday was the day that Christ was raised from the dead, that we saw that he had conquered death and that we could have eternal life through him. So we meet and we gather and we sing and we rejoice. We pray and we rejoice. We give and we rejoice. All these things we rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in the great I am. And so as we end our time, that's my challenge to you, that you would rejoice in God as we sing the last songs, that you would rejoice in God. And as we move to the Lord's Supper now, this is a time where we rejoice in God. We rejoice in his great sacrifice. So if you're serving the Lord's Supper, you can make your way back there. And as they're making their way back, I just want to remind you guys why we do the Lord's Supper is one, to remember and rejoice. Like if you know Christ, we want you to to remember this moment, to look back at Christ's great sacrifice. So look back and remember, but also in this time, as you take the Lord's Supper, this is a a tangible time for you to proclaim, to rejoice and proclaim the death of Christ. You do, as believers, that's what God's word says. But we don't just stop there. We look forward to the future. When Christ will come again, where all these wrongs will be made right, where all these small pictures of of death and pain will be taken away and be made new. So Christian, take a moment as as this is being passed to just look back at what Christ did. Look to this moment right now and realize that you're proclaiming the death of Christ and then look forward with hope. But if you're not a believer, you're not putting your faith in Christ, you read this text, you struggle with it some, my challenge for you is just to let it pass because this is for believers. But I challenge you to do the same thing. I want you to look to this moment right now. Look at a church that proclaims the death of Christ, that we believe it, that we live for it, that this is what our life is all about.
But we also, I want to challenge you to look back at Christ's great sacrifice and believe, to believe in him so that you can look forward one day, not with fear and anxiety of judgment, but rather with hope and excitement. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the great I am. You're the the rock of our salvation. You're the one that we proclaim and we remember now. So Lord, I pray as we take um, the Lord's Supper that you'd help us to look back, look at this moment, but also to look forward rejoicing that you are a great king and the great I am. Because Lord, you and you alone can save. You and you alone can redeem. It's in Christ's name we thank you.